Al Jazeera podcast. To keep up with the latest from Gaza, make sure to subscribe to The Take. It helps more listeners find out about the show. Hit follow wherever you're listening to this episode. Free, free Palestine! American universities are supposed to be safe spaces for free speech. Protests inside Harvard Yard attracted over 250 supporters of Palestine. But students at Harvard University found out how risky that can be after they released a letter holding the Israeli government, quote, entirely responsible for all unfolding violence, end quote, in the wake of Hamas's October 7th attack. It began as a spreadsheet that was circulating on Twitter that listed the names of students who were involved with the various student organizations who had signed. And then from there, the doxing got much worse. Driving around Harvard's campus today, a so-called doxing truck displaying the names and faces of students allegedly linked to the letter. But it goes beyond school. Speaking out in support of Palestine, or being Palestinian, can mean lost jobs for people in Israel. In Europe, some countries have banned pro-Palestinian protests. And in the U.S., it appears to have led to the stabbing of a six-year-old boy and his mother. Federal authorities have opened a hate crime investigation into the horrific stabbing death of a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy. His mother was also stabbed but survived. Racism toward Arabs and Muslims is nothing new. But will the war in Gaza make things worse? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. On Saturday, October 7th, students at Harvard University issued a statement holding Israel entirely responsible for the violence taking place in Israel and Gaza. They said the events did not occur in a vacuum. The occupation of Palestine over the past 75 years has very much led us to where we are here today. That voice is from one of the students who requested anonymity for their safety we've changed their voice to protect their identity. A statement was drafted by a coalition of students and a total of 34 student organizations across Harvard University added their organization names. At first, they didn't think much more about it. For the first two days after the statement was released and circulated on social media, there was no immediate or violent backlash. But I think things really started to take a turn once Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, shared a tweet calling out the 34 student organizations. That led to further reactions. Two billionaires are pulling their funding for the Kennedy School in Cambridge, saying they cannot support an institution that tiptoes around the Hamas terror attack against Israel. In their letter to the Harvard board, the Wexners specifically talked about that letter from student groups that blamed Israel for the violence. From there, the doxing started. It began as, you know, a spreadsheet that was circulating on Twitter that listed the names of 
students. And then from there, the doxing got much worse. A couple of days later, the appearance of a truck in Harvard Square with students' faces and names on it. And I think it's important to note that while this is not the first time that pro-Palestinian voices on campus or in our country have been silenced, it's certainly one of the most violent times we've seen it on Harvard's campus and has targeted students on a very personal, individual level, which has left many of them feeling compromised and their sense of safety threatened. And consequences for speaking up could follow students in the future. Several CEOs are asking for all the students involved in the letter at Harvard to be identified so they can be, quote, blacklisted for future jobs. I think it's been so hard to see my community, honestly, feel so scared in the past week. And there's been just so much fear and terror, honestly, in in people's eyes as they walk around campus or try to get from class to class or really try to you know, in another moment, speak up for Palestine. And it has been so sad, honestly, seeing that. And it's left me feeling like I have a responsibility to use my voice and speak up as much as I can. And Harvard isn't the only campus that's experienced tensions. The Israel-Hamas war stoking protests across the U.S. at various college campuses. In the Northeast, a pro-Palestinian demonstration at Brooklyn College. And at Columbia University, massive crowds as supporters of both Israel and Palestinians held competing protests. Columbia, Columbia, open your eyes! In the nation's capital, American University students gathering in solidarity with Israel. Mustafa Bayoumi is a professor of English at Brooklyn College in New York. There were protests outside his campus last week. And in the past, there have been events similar to what happened at Harvard. A rally in support of Palestinians is underway outside a college in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, I imagine that you've seen what's happened at Harvard University with a coalition of student groups who put out a letter on social media. They have felt the pushback and that has morphed into them being doxxed. Their pictures and their phone numbers and their identities being blasted around town. What do you make of what you're seeing there? Does it surprise you at all? Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me one bit. In fact, also on Brooklyn campus several years ago, we had something similar to that. One day people came to campus and that morning, people who were part of Students for Justice in Palestine or certain faculty members, posters had been made of their faces and they had been plastered up on telephone poles just outside of the campus. I think that the people who are behind these actions. The context for the people at Harvard University, it's again meant to intimidate people into silence, right? It's meant to say that if you want to hold an opinion that Palestinian lives matter, then we're going to try to ruin the rest of your life. Because it means that people will, not only will they have fear for their daily life because their names and images and addresses have been exposed, but it also has implications for what kind of jobs they might be applying for in the future. It has implications, things as we know also, things never go away off of the internet. And so it's an attempt to really intimidate people into silence. Um, unfortunately, this sentiment has gone from online to offline to very real consequences for people. Um, And I'm talking, of course, of what happened in Illinois on Saturday. 
So last week, a man in Illinois repeatedly stabbed a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy to death 26 times after first attacking his mother. And these were his tenants. Prayers echoed at the mosque in Bridgeview. The community paused to remember six-year-old Wade Afuyume. Wade's father greeted them with handshakes and hugs. It's like a dream. I still didn't believe my son is gone. Now, the 71-year-old has been charged with murder and a hate crime, amongst other things. But what is there to be said about what happened here and the responsibility for it? Because this is happening under this context of this climate that we're living in, where Palestinians say they feel fearful. I don't think it's only Palestinians either. I I feel fearful too. I mean, I think we all do. We're recalling post 9-11 United States. And that was a time that put all of us at risk. There tends to be more violence against Muslim Americans when the rhetoric by our politicians turns nasty against Muslim Americans. For American Muslims, 9-11 brought the same loss felt by every American, but it also triggered an onslaught of anti-Muslim sentiment that has only risen in the decades since. That's what the organization Institute for Social and Political Understanding um, has found. And in fact, the levels of violence against Muslim Americans reached their height not after 9-11. They reached their height in 2016 with the campaign of Donald Trump. And now we're seeing it again. We're seeing it from the right-wing media. I, I would say Hamas as an entity is just like ISIS. Why precisely is there a caucus in the United States Congress that openly sympathizes and lies on behalf of a Jew-hating genocidal terrorist group? The, these protests are not so much pro-Palestinian as fully aligned with Hamas. Hamas is an Islamist terrorist organization. From what I understand, the, the alleged man who stabbed the, the child in Illinois was an avid consumer of various forms of right-wing media. We're hearing it again from the Republican side of the aisle, very loudly, this kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric. We have heard some vicious and vile anti-Palestinian rhetoric in recent days from people like Tom Cotton, a Republican senator, saying... As far as he's concerned, Israel can bounce rubble in Gaza. Lindsey Graham saying Israel should level Gaza. Uh, Ron DeSantis saying everyone in Gaza is an anti-Semite and shouldn't be allowed into America as refugees. Marjorie Taylor Greene saying if you're pro-Palestinian, you're pro-Hamas. Some very, very rough people come out of those areas. They want to blow up our country. We aren't bringing in anyone from Gaza, Syria, Somalia, Yemen or Libya or anywhere else that threatens our security. After the break, it can still be dangerous to support Palestine, but are there any reasons to be optimistic? Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm speaking with Mustafa Bayoumi a professor of English at Brooklyn College, who's written extensively on the experiences of Muslims and Arabs in the United States. But some of the trends he's seeing are not limited to the U.S. As protests worldwide in support of Palestine increase, some European countries, like France, 
have made these demonstrations illegal. The ban was put in place by France's interior minister, Gérald Dermanon. The minister has said that any foreign nationals breaking the rules will be deported. What are some of the ways that you've seen support for Palestinians being suppressed around the world? I think what's most important is to see that it's at the governmental level. So we're getting government edicts from, say, in France or in Germany and in different cities around the world, especially in the Western cities, that are actually banning pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Not just saying that, you know, we're going to watch out for potential violence at any mass demonstration or something like that. Not even saying we don't want to watch, we don't want to hear people support terrorism, whatever that means either. But in fact, just saying that pro-Palestinian demonstrations will not be allowed to occur. That means the government is taking a very clear side in this conflict. That means the governments of these so-called open societies are actually closing the doors to free speech. That means these governments are engaged uh, officially and publicly in censorship, and I think that that's outrageous. So, Mustafa, on Wednesday, October 18th, we saw hundreds of people in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, speak out in support of Palestinian humanhood and Palestinian rights. Protesters are taking the pro-Palestinian cause to the U.S. Capitol here in the Cannon House office building. Uh, I'd say about five dozen, maybe six dozen activists wearing T-shirts that say, not in our name, Jews say a ceasefire now, came into Cannon chanting. They knew they would be arrested. And they came from Jewish groups. I see my job as carrying on their legacy as Jews who fundamentally see their role as standing up for stateless and oppressed people all throughout the world. And I see no better way to do that than fighting for peace and a ceasefire in Gaza today. And so I want to get your take on what we saw this week. But in the context of this tweet, this is from Jewish Voice for Peace, which was one of the groups that organized the protest, along with If Not Now. And they write, today, 500 Jews were arrested and 10,000 took to the streets to support and to demand a ceasefire and an end to Palestinian genocide. We shut down Congress to draw mass attention to the U.S. complicity in Israel's ongoing oppression of Palestinians. But our work isn't done. And there's one word in there that really stands out for curious watchers, and it's genocide. Does it say something that the word genocide is being used with regard to Israel, even by Jewish protesters on Capitol Hill? I certainly hope so. I mean, I was at a demonstration, Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, actually also had a demonstration last Friday here in New York City. And I actually attended that, that demonstration, though I'm not Jewish, but I'm, I'm certainly an ally. Mm. What was it like? It was powerful. Mm-hmm. It was powerful. And it's so important to see so many Jewish people who have a a deep connection to Israel. They're marching and saying that they will not abide by these actions. And, and also, even then, they, the speakers were then saying that this is genocidal. And I think that there is, for one thing, the collective punishment of cutting off people's food, water, and electricity is a kind of action that it seems medieval if uh, even that word doesn't uh hmm. capture it mm-hmm. i can't i can't describe the the cruelty of such an action and people are reacting to that i think mm. 
And then I wrote in The Guardian, actually, this past week about how what Israel is doing will actually satisfy the legal definition of genocide as well. And I think I'm not the only one. We know what history has taught us exactly what's in front of us. And so to see, you know, large numbers of Jewish Americans come out and say, not in our name, is extremely powerful, is extremely important. And I think it is something that we need to embrace. But also very, very important is that after all of this is done, and it will end at some point, but after all of this is done, all, all of us, including those allies, everyone, all of us have to work to change the status quo. We can't just go back to where, the way things were. There has to be an attempt to find a lasting solution that is based on justice and equality and not on the oppression of one people over the other. Um, As a follow-up to that, you wrote in that Guardian piece a few things that I I, I wanted to note on. Um, One is that one can be opposed to Hamas, as I am, you wrote, and to the indiscriminate bombing and ethnic cleansing of Gaza, as I am. But the next is that you started the piece with a question. And so I want to end on that question for our listeners. What are you doing to stop the imminent ethnic cleansing of Gaza? Do you think that people are beginning to do enough? No, I don't. I think because we still are hearing about bombings every day and, and, you know, people are switching Gaza from a question of uh, occupation and human rights to a humanitarian issue as if it were something like an earthquake. Right. We have to understand that this is a political question. It is not a humanitarian question. This is a question of one side waging a completely asymmetrical war on a defenseless population. And we should all be out on the streets demanding that that end, especially here in the United States, because the close uh, dependence of Israel on the United States means that we as American citizens have a responsibility to make sure that things that are uh, financed from the American coffers uh, bear our values. But what people should be doing is maximizing their talents to work for justice. In whatever way you can, you should be speaking out, acting out, drawing out, dancing out, whatever it is. But we should be all maximizing our talents to make sure that the carnage stops and that freedom reigns. And that's The Take. While we're continuing our coverage on the occupied West Bank, Gaza, and Israel, here's another story that's on our radar this week. In Brazil, a congressional panel has accused former President Jair Bolsonaro of inciting the country's January 8th riot following his narrow election loss. Earlier this year, a mob of Bolsonaro's supporters stormed state institutions, a week after his successor, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, was sworn in as president. The panel is recommending Bolsonaro be charged with the violent overthrow of democratic rule. Bolsonaro has denied any involvement. This episode was produced by David Enders, Chloe K. Lee, and Amy Walters, with Khaled Sultan, Sariyat Khalili, Sonia Bagat, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Malhotra, Veronisa Campana, Zaina Bazar, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. 
Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.